Can't believe I woke up this morning wondering if my daddy was home with his overcoat. And here it is just past midnight. I've already robbed a railroad train. I'm sitting in a rocking chair chatting with none other than Jesse James. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. You know what I got right next to my bed? It's The Train Robbers or Story of the James Boys by R.W. Stevens. I mean, many's the night I stayed up, my eyes open, my mouth open, just reading about your escapades in the Wide Awake Library. They're all lies, you know. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, starring Casey Affleck. Your daddy was a pastor of the New Hope Baptist Church, and my daddy was a pastor at the church in Excelsior Springs. You have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. You're five feet eight inches tall, I'm five feet eight inches tall. Brad Pitt. Can't figure it out. You want to be like me? Or you want to be me? Paul Schneider. So he'll cut our throats if he finds out. You don't know him like I do. You do Jesse dirt. You can I behind his back. Well, he'll come after you with a cleaver. Jeremy Renner. You may play like you're a dangerous person in the grocery store. But don't you go misremembering who you be accounting to. And Sam Rockwell. You think it's all made up, don't you? You think it's all yarns and, and newspaper stories. He's just a human being. Directed by Andrew Dominique. I've been a nobody all my life. I was the baby. I was the one they made promises to that they never kept. Ever since I can remember it, Jesse James has been as big as a tree. I'm prepared for this, Jim. I want to accomplish it. I know I won't get this one opportunity, and you can bet your life I'm not going to spoil. Hello, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Used to be nobody could sneak up on Jesse James. It's Galley in Glasgow. And just as mad as a hornet, it's Devlin in London. Uh, you can hide words in vocabulary. It's Patrick in London. I guess we're the night owls, you and I. It's Matt in South Korea. Hello, welcome back gang, and welcome back listeners to another episode of the Rewind Movie Podcast. This week, a throwback episode. Patrick, you picked this one a hell of a long time ago, and we're finally getting around to doing it. And it's caused some division amongst the panel, so I'm looking forward to this episode. So Patrick, what are we discussing today? And what are your experiences with the film? Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? I think the 10-day uh, uh, deadline the police gave me to bring you in, Gally, has passed by now. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, why? I, you know what? I, I went back to on the, my list when we started this of things we wanted to um, to talk about. You know, when you gave us the idea, I was like, right, I've got to start drafting my list of things. And this was the second film on the list, much to my surprise, actually. Um, the first film was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, <laughs> but we, we've happily done that one. And one of the reasons was, and forgive me, Matt, uh, to exclude you here, but this is one of the only films I really remember going to see with Galley in Dublin at university. Mm-hmm. 2007. I don't know whether, I think it came at a point where I just come back from Prague. I, I went on an Erasmus program for four months studying abroad. 
And I think it was the summer. Studying, studying, come on. Oi! <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I got good grades, I'll have you know. <laughs> um, and just to keep sandwiches in a little bit, I, when, when we exited the, the theatre, um, two of us looked at each other with kind of the same uh, response to the film and we shared that together. And w- one of us was um, a little bit less so. I'll say two of us were five star, one of us were four star, which was um, really interesting. And um, I know like I'll criticize you in the past for getting kind of thing, films that weren't available on VHS, but this was one that um, we're a grown up podcast now, of course, as we said in the new year. And this is my grown up pick really. I wanted to talk about something that isn't quite an adult film and um, it's really stuck with me over the years. It's been something that I, I always find not many people not heard of, but it's definitely not seen. And I really wanted to kind of look into why that could be with you guys and remember the time when we saw this together. And it's came in a really good year for films 2007, um, uh, which I, I think is a shared view. Um, <clears throat> that's my, that's my history with it really. And I'll, See what I'm going to go see what Matt's history of it is because I think it's a little shorter than, than that. Yeah, um, I'd never seen it. Um, I didn't actively avoid it, but um, I, you know, when I watched it, I recognised the chap from all the real girls. Um, you know, I, it was a great cast. I was excited to get into it finally. Casey Affleck, arguably the more interesting of the of the two brothers. Um, Renner, Rockwell, what's not to like? And then, you know, and, and like weirdly, like in spite of Pitt and Deakins, they'd probably be the draw, the two of them for me. Uh, not, nothing else about it, um, sort of uh, grabbed me and, and made me want to watch it initially. So, uh, and I didn't even know how long it was before that. So I can't blame that. So, you know, uh, without the podcast, this probably wouldn't have been one that I rushed to. So, uh, it was a, a definitely an interesting, interesting pick for me. Uh, can I guess who, who was the four star and who was the five star? Or shall I leave it and leave the sandwiches I, in the, in the box? Well, we won't reveal it. You can guess, but we won't reveal the answer. No, I won't guess. I won't guess. I'll pass over to, uh, Gally next. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously I saw it with Patrick and Devlin at university and then I, really hadn't thought about this film for the longest time until Patrick you picked it and then also coincidentally I guested on a on a show and Traitor they pay in fig they pay me in fig rolls so it was uh it was a it was a tempting <laughs> offer that I couldn't refuse. Um so so no um so I so I rewatched the film uh, to discuss it with them and uh it just so happened to be that you picked it. Um, a bit like Matt though, like there's no way I would have gone back to it because it was, you know, it was pretty much cemented in my, in my mind. And I joked when you picked it, Patrick, and it, I didn't mean to be dismissive when I said it's like the longest Jack Daniels mm-hmm. advert you've ever seen. Oh, the, yeah. aesthetic, the, the aesthetic is that, um, if anyone remember those old timey Jack Daniels, uh, adverts, which probably actually were, were riffing off this film because mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about the, the old wood barrel photo style mm-hmm. um, that Deakins does employ in the in the movie. So uh, yeah, my my history with it is 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 that that I saw it in the cinema. I've I've now bought it on Blu-ray. 
uh, and watched it on on my very you know uh, advanced television and uh, it, it, it Ooh, still looks all wonderful. right somebody's getting paid yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, fi- again, uh, fig rolls, fig rolls. Anything else you want to share, Gally, from your luxurious lifestyle? Um, no. I watched it on my 22 inch Bush TV that I got from Argos. <laughs> what about you then, Devlin? I mean, obviously you saw it at the cinema with myself and Patrick, but have you, have you kept the love alive? Because obviously one of the things we are going to try and unpack is where this film sits now in the, in the landscape of, of movie talk and discourse, because I do wonder if it hadn't been shot by Sir Roger Deakins, then this film probably would have fallen into complete obscurity. We did say that we wouldn't reveal who was the four or the five star, but I don't think we're going to be able to mask that for even <laughs> more than two seconds because um, uh, my history of the film is that we went to see it together. It was ahead of time. I was fairly certain this was going to be absolutely my jam uh we we'd already seen the proposition we went to we went to the film festival together i think and saw the proposition together certainly i saw it at leeds film festival oh of course yeah we did yeah um and from there i became completely obsessed uh not so much weirdly with nick cave but with warren ellis um uh and i got way into dirty three and it was the sort of music that i was listening to anyway that kind of post rock post classical whatever kind of stuff so I, I as soon as i heard the the music on the on the trailer i was hooked and um and this is 2007 so this is like the last year of film school basically to me cinematographers were like my rock stars and as obvious as it is now completely obvious of course that roger deakins is you know the the kind of at the very pinnacle of that profession um uh, this was a guy who, uh, uh, was, was putting out interesting work. It was pre kind of pre his, his Oscar finally, but, um, around that time and probably beyond then it's, uh, I'm quite easily, uh, uh, um, passed off with a, a film that has a beautiful score and beautiful cinematography. There's, uh, um, there are caveats to it, but I can be very easily suckered in if those two things are, uh, are present. And obviously that was basically the, the main thrust of this film. So, uh, that was my history with it. And I bought, um, a lovely, uh, two disc edition slipcase DVD, which is what I rewatched for, uh, for the episode here. Although I will say with a caveat that that two disc DVD, apparently I'd never watched disc two and I put it in to see whether there would be some sort of incredible making of. It's a 30-minute TV documentary about Jesse James featuring a bunch of fucking B-roll footage shot behind the scenes. Uh, a pretty interesting little documentary, but there's there's not much. I, I will say this, though, Gally, and I don't know whether you remember this as well. I don't know whether we worked together at the same time, but um, I think I, when I left you guys at the cinema, I think one of the first things I did was buy the, sound, the score. Um, yeah. Because I've had it ever since, and I used to listen to that in the Levi's stockroom when I was doing a new stock take, like um, a new delivery, just as my atmospheric music <laughs> to chill out hmm. to. Because I, um, I enjoyed that very much, and it's one of the first Blu-rays I ever bought in 2008 um, as well. I can imagine you slipping on your 501s and putting your boots on, getting ready to <laughs> slipping on Cor- some uh, Corral- Jack Daniels. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, right. Well, I tell you what then, Patrick, um, I think it's story time 
with Tom. So for those, for those listeners who have, um, have not seen the assassination of Jesse James or for those that have seen it, but not for a long time, can you please give us a plot synopsis of the film? Jesse James considered himself a Southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. He had seen another summer under in Kansas City, Missouri and on September 5th in the year 1881. He was 34 years old. The James Gang are planning their last train robbery in Blue Cut, Missouri. Starstruck 19-year-old Robert Ford is along for the robbery with his brother Charlie and makes unsuccessful attempts at pitching how special he is to Frank and Jesse James. The bleak robbery goes ahead with disappointing spoils. Jesse returns to Kansas with the Fords, Wood Height, and Dick Little. But to everyone's surprise, keeps Robert around longer to help him move home and dismisses the others. Buoyed by this time with Jesse, Robert's obsession and admiration grows. But soon, he too is dismissed, as Jesse can't decide if Robert wants to be like him or be him. Arriving at the Boltons, Dick Little reveals to Robert that he is in cahoots with Jim Cummings and will be mad as a hornet should Jesse find out. Jesse visits another gang member, the timid Ed Miller, whose apparent fear stirs Jesse's suspicion and subsequently shoots him after finding out Jim Cummings' intentions. He is unable to find Jim and viciously beats Robert's young cousin Albert in an interrogation. Jesse breaks down. After these actions, a lifetime of violence weighing heavily upon his fair-laden shoulders as he's drawn inexorably towards his fate. Later, Dick Little wrongs Wood Height and sleeps with his mother-in-law, resulting in a wild shootout, injuring both. Dick Little clicks his empty gun at Height, but is beaten until Robert shoots Wood in the head. Robert informs the police of Jesse's whereabouts, selling out Dick Little in the process and is given ten days to capture the cages. Unpredictability clouds the landscape, and on the morning of April 3rd, 1882, as Dick Little's confession is published in the paper, the Fords know their time has come. It's Jesse or them. As Jesse takes off his gun belt for the first time and dusts the painting, it is Robert who pulls the trigger and shoots Jesse in the back. Robert... A spring in his step now, expecting applause and notoriety in this wake, tells his tale over 800 times on the stage with a flair for acting. But the jeers and heckles grow. He is branded the titular coward. Charlie takes his own life in his sorrow, while Robert comes to terms with the reality of who he is. He becomes a saloon owner with his wife, Dorothy Evans, hosting punters whose smiles quickly fade as he passes. On June 8th, 1892, Robert is murdered by Edward O'Kelly in an act of apparent revenge for Jesse James. There would be no eulogies for Bob, no photographs of his body would be sold in sundry stores. No people would crowd the streets in the rain to see his funeral cortege. No biographies would be written about him, no children named after him. No one would ever pay 25 cents to stand in the rooms he grew up in. Robert Ford would never be 34 years old. Another fantastic <laughs> recounting there by Tom Hardy. <laughs> I'm sorry it was a little long, that one. No, 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 listen, everyone's peacefully gone to the, gone to the, the land of the non. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I tried, no, I tried to cut really stuff down, one. but it was, there's quite a lot of, 
we, we've spoken offline about this kind of loose plot in this film. But then when I was trying to write stuff down, I was like, whoa, quite a lot happens. Mm. And there's quite a lot of names and there's this happens, which has a knock on effect for them. And, you know, so I tried to. Well, and, and also Patrick, uh, you know, a lot happens within the film and a lot is, um, is presumed knowledge, I think. So I, I, I'm not convinced that the impact of, um, what, uh, Andrew Dominique is trying to, to do in this kind of, retelling or revisiting of the Jesse James mythos um, can really be felt unless you know a little bit about the, the kind of the history of the man himself. And, and the, the comparison, the comparison I had, it's partly because I'm in Scotland, but is of how um, William Wallace and Braveheart has now been kind of repackaged and become this kind of icon symbol of <laughs> hope and patriotism and, and Robert the Bruce has been has sort of been turned into this sort of villainous, redemptive character, and and all the history that surrounds them is now very much funneled in the '95 movie. Jesse James had a had an entire kind of Western history, and also they talk about Nickelbook mm-hmm. uh, stories about his uh, his robberies, and essentially he was what like a Robin Hood figure. For the West, he, I mean, he at the time, like people in history, look back on him as the birth of the American celebrity, which I thought was very interesting. And there's a lot that we're going to talk about mm. in that theme, I'm sure, today. Mm. I guess um, that's a perspective that um, came across more so after I watched the um, the documentary. Because in terms of relating this to the historical Jesse James, I never really had, nor did I actually ever feel like that was something that I, that I needed to do to enjoy the, the film. I, I, I get caught up in the atmosphere of the film and the interplay between the characters themselves, but it was really interesting to go back and watch the documentary and see the life of, that he had. And, and, uh, the first thing that jumps out is that from the age of 13 onwards, he was a brutal guerrilla soldier in mm. one of the most notorious, uh, uh, groups of, of, uh, of Confederate bushwhackers, they called them. Hmm. And um, knowing that, that resonates through several parts of the film as well. But but just in general, like the the life of a man who never really had an adolescence. Could I could I be the voice of dissent just already? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, I, the historical aspect, like I didn't know anything about him. Um, it's not taught in schools here. So, you know, he's an American figure, really, I, I guess. Um, predominantly. And, um, you know, I didn't know anything about him at all. I knew more about Billy the Kid and uh, people like that through, through movies than I did about Jesse James. One of my only references actually was, um, in the gangster rap episode of uh, Louis Theroux, where one of the rappers wants to be Jesse James. And I thought that was <laughs> kind of, uh, interesting. But, um, he has like a six shooter and a, almost like a pork pie style hat going on. Right. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of interesting. But, um, I, I'd, I'm of the school of thought that, you know, you, you shouldn't need to be a history buff. You shouldn't need to know anything about the man in order to, as Devlin said, you know, engage with the film and enjoy the film on a historical topic. I think that's why we get the narrator at the beginning as well, just to set the tone of who he is and where he's at in his life. Well, when I grew up, Matt, I had four little books that my parents bought me because I, was interested in cowboys, mainly mm. through Playmobil, because I used to have the Playmobil <laughs> yeah. uh, Western stuff, and I used to lo- love their kind of idea of cowboys. 
Um, but I had four books. It was Wise Up, Doc Holiday, Billy the Kid, and Jesse James. Mm. There four little, almost nickel books that like Robert That's Ford cool. had to read on basic history things of them. Which was, I did always remember how interesting his death seemed to be from reading it when I was younger as well. Mm. And it was kind of like a famous death, like uh, John Lennon, Chapman. Um, JFK, you know, it was one of those famous deaths that I always knew. It was one, something I looked up in, in Carter when we first had it, you know, like Jesse James. Well, and then the film touches upon that, right? So he becomes famous for the way that he's assassinated. Mm-hmm. But, and that sort of seems to have washed away the sins of the man himself because, and the, and the film tackles that. And one of the things you said, Matt, about the, so I'm going to slightly undercut my own point when I said that I think it helps if you have a appreciation of the history of the character. And I think I, I'm going to stand by that. But the way that the film gets around that is it in its casting. So if you cast Brad Pitt, you have already got a living legend, so to speak, in movie terms. So as an audience member, you don't you need you know that he's the most important person on screen straight away and i think that's quite clever in the way that he's played against type but for 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 you watching the film you know right brad pitt's the central focus he's the leader of the gang you don't really need to have any other information you know you know you say cast against type but this is a role like you said of someone jesse james is super famous Brad Pitt's super famous and there's, there's, there's a really interesting thing we could go into even further where like Casey Affleck wants to be Brad Pitt, let's say, and he even gets the Oscar nomination, <laughs> loses out to it, which is very meta, some sort it? of very meta considering Robert Ford got forgotten and it didn't get the, the, the accolades that he wanted at the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I quite like that. But wait, when you say against type, Gally, do you mean like, cause at the time with, Brad Pitt, that this film was um, produced by a few companies, including Scott, uh, our friend twice Wrigley. now, Wrigley. Yeah. Wrigley it, it was Is on the phone. To, uh, Tony Scott was an exec as well. And Brad Pitt was a producer from his company, Plan B, which is essentially Brad wanted to make good films and be a part of good films. I think he wanted to get away from mm. the Troy. Well, I think they did produce Troy anyway, but, but that kind of, yeah. <laughs> when I think about it, but no, I think he, you know, he wanted interesting roles and I think he, or, I don't know, he's always had a bit of an indie sensibility about him compared to the bigger stuff. That well, he, he got, he got to the top of the tree. So I think yeah. it's easier. It was easier for him at that point in his career. He is transitioning from star, like Ocean's Eleven Brad Pitt yeah. to yeah. Riot. Cause I remember when he popped up in 12 Years a Slave and then obviously I recognized that he, his production company had a hand in mm-hmm. um, in making the film, but it felt like, oh, that's a bit odd that Brad Pitt just rocked up in this kind of conflicted character who is l- not morally ambiguous, but doesn't necessarily do the right thing straight away. And and there's something about when I say against type in this film, he is not present. He is not Brad Pitt as we have known him for the last decade okay he's 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 really really low energy yes he has elements of charm in brad pitt in in the film doesn't he but it's 10 percent, i think it's yeah and it and it actually comes early in the film and it very much as the film goes through but he himself starts to really descend and and become kind of low-key which for a brad pitt performance is is very much against time well i I don't know about the 
you know the the casting I, I do think the casting of Brad Pitt is is good but not for that reason I, I'd associate him as being a a gentlemanly family man at this point I think him and Angie are adopting all the kids from every corner of the world <laughs> yeah. and the, the the brutality that you're talking about I did not get at all I had no clue of the Jesse James uh brutality based on uh what I saw um but I was kind of asking myself during the first 30 minutes anyway that is this Brad Pitt's best performance and I just wondered what you what you thought about that 30 minutes in you started thinking that Matt well, I, I have this note here. Uh, the, the first, the first time I watched it, uh, I, I counted how many notes before I got to my negative <laughs> train of thought and it was eight. Yeah. Uh, I wrote eight things down before I went down the drain sandwiches. So, yeah. uh, the, the first 30 minutes or so, I, I don't know why. Maybe he just holds the screen. Maybe it's, it's just, you know, I, I He's I think just very easy on the eye, isn't he? <laughs> if you excuse I mean, he, I, I think he's he's stunning in this, and and yeah, I think there's a a really good setting at the very beginning. We have this these lovely clouds flying over the the beautiful music that we have. Those are and my favorite Brad- fast motion clouds I've ever seen in, in, <laughs> yeah. in any film. Like above um above Rumblefish. Even above Rumblefish, because of its color, <laughs> wow. I think, and like the, the, there's something okay. about like it's like a Turner Turner esque kind of thing going on. Matt above Blade when they speed up Blade. <laughs> <laughs> That's number but, three. Blade at three. But there's that image of, of um, Jesse in in a field at the very beginning as the narrator's setting the tone with the music, and. I mean, first note is like his hair, you know, Brad Pitt doesn't have black hair, but black hair really suits him. Black root seems really suit him, but he just cuts a figure, doesn't he? Against the American landscape, we, we, I think we understand this is a, a really striking historical figure straight away with him. But that, that, that's just his appearance. That's just the aesthetic of Brad. I, I always find that my favorite Brad Pitt performances are where he's a little unhinged and unpredictable. And we're not quite sure, like Fight Club, like um, 12 Monkeys. I think his face is a complete, like, uh, canvas in this film. Um, mm. Deakins does a, there's a scene when he's with Ed Miller in his shitty cabin and he looks like death. Yeah. He's so washed out, the lighting and he, like, like a skull type thing. But Brad's still face and stare. I think some of the best acting he's ever done. Jim Cummins, come by here. Jim Cummins. Oh, and Jim says, you know them boys got caught in the blue cut deal? And Jim says, he got word that you're planning to kill him. Why would I do that? Not. Let's just talk, probably. Jim Cummins. He say anything else? Nope. No, that was it, basically. That still don't explain why you're scared. Well, I'm in the same situation, you see. I was terrified I saw you ride up. I just happened by, Ed. Oh, suppose you heard gossip, though. Suppose you heard you heard Jim Cummins come by here. You might have thought that we we, we were planning to capture you or get that reward, and, and, and that ain't true. 
But you might have suspected it. Haven't heard a lick of gossip lately. I got $600 stashed away. I don't, I don't need no governor's reward. Well, I, I've put Moneyball and uh, California as my top two. Uh, f- just for performance, I think his best film is Seven. But performance-wise, I'd go with Moneyball or California. But like in a Costner way, I thought. You remember when we talked about Costner on Robin Hood? And we discussed his merits because it was confusing to someone in the, in the audience why we liked him so much. Um, it, it's almost like he's a blank canvas at times and we can, we can put emotion onto, onto him. Mm. Uh, I'm not calling him a mannequin. Like as such, it's just he has something, he has an ability to not do too much, but still hold the screen in a very, uh, charismatic mm. way. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Patrick when it comes down to the, and, and, and kudos to makeup, costume, cinematography, all the departments for really giving us a, a very different Brad Pitt in this film. Um, it reminded me a little bit, uh, partly down to the fact that the style is kind of Malick-esque, but there's a bit of tree of life in his performance in this. There's a lot of looking longerly, um, out into the plains and, one of the, uh, you know his he's just muted isn't he like he all the color is saturated out of his skin but his eyes are piercing blue especially in that encounter with ed mm-hmm. yeah. where he is essentially death come to visit him brad pitt was very tixy in 12 monkeys i think he was trying to stretch out and do something unusual but it it's interesting that he was doing that in service of one of the most muted and and still uh Bruce Willis performances in 12 Monkeys and this has has flipped which is that Casey Affleck is the one who has to do the work of making you for the first parts of the film genuinely uncomfortable to watch him interact with these people which is so Mm. uh, extraordinary the way that when when Sam Shepard when Frank says to him there's something about you the more you talk the more you make me uncomfortable it's like it's the same thing for the audience and to Mm. see Bob kind of flopping and trying and, and, and the, the scene of the two of them after the robbery where the, where he's, he's, t- he's choking on the, on the cigar because you can tell that it's making him sick and just the, the reactions that, um, Brad Pitt has in that sequence are, I thought, incredible. Especially there's, there's a moment where he kind of just seems to, for a few seconds, be unable to bear the weight of literally existence just briefly. And then he'll sit mm-hmm. back and the mask goes back on. Moments like that, that you can do a lot with very little. Um, I, I think this is my favorite Brad Pitt performance. I was just kind of split with this one. It was like a two sides of a coin, really. I, I really love the scene you're talking about where he visits Ed. That's probably my favorite scene where he kind of goes corpse like just for a second. It's almost a freeze frame. It's like he's died already. And then there's another scene, the, the, the fake throat slicing scene on, on Bob Ford that I, I feel like that's outstanding, really. That's some of the best stuff I've ever seen him do. And like, even at the end, there's a close up towards the end. I can't remember exactly where, but you can see the crow's feet in, in his complexion and you realize that he's getting on, he's getting on a bit now and he's got this really strong cinematic look. Cause I think the problem at the beginning was he was too good looking. He was like Redford. He's like he could only get cast in certain roles, and he mm. and he's had to try and break out. I always felt um, that, that that added to the myth of of the man he's portraying, and well, it works it. in the film though, Patrick, doesn't it? It works in the film because yeah. at the first the first thirty minutes that you're talking about, um, when we get to the robbery, 
the initial build up to the robbery is what what you're thinking you're about to watch is Jesse James as written in these Nickelback comics. Nickelback? Nickelback? Nickel. <laughs> <laughs> look at this photograph. No, look at- <laughs> it's got kind of nice floaty edges. Yeah, yeah. Oh god, imagine that. Uh, anyway, why did I on earth did I just think of uh, Chad Groger? Um, oh, no, when, um, <laughs> Chad, Chad, Chad. <laughs> There's a part where um, it's like a tableau, isn't it? The way that Deacons has done it, which, by the way, just cream your pants te- technical stuff when it comes down to the way that they um, the way that they build up to the the robbery of the train. But there's a shot where Brad Pitt uh, or Brad Pitt as Jesse James like walks through the steam of the train as it stops. And it is all pure icon stuff. And then it's completely undercut by the robbery itself, which is long, brutal, and they never even get any money. They literally, it's a waste of time. You've got Sam Shepard nicking, nicking coins off, off foreign, uh, migrants. It's like, it's brilliant. I, I, I thought that was stunning. Now, one of us in our, in our midst here found that train robbery quite boring. It's the most boring train robbery in film history. Wow. Can you, can you tell us why, Matt? Like, what, um, cause. Well, I want to go back to Brad Pitt for a second because it connects to this. It's like, why don't I care when Jesse cuts the heads off snakes? I'm, I'm sort of digging into my mind to figure out what these certain scenes mean as they're happening. And this happened time and time again for me. Like when Jesse cries, why am I not really empathetic in that moment? And why is the the death, the inevitable death that we know is coming, underwhelming for me? And I think that one thing I can bring it down to is that I, I felt intellectually stimulated at times, but at the expense of being emotionally engaged, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, is it be- is it because, Matt, that it's not Jesse that you should be focusing on? Because this is a Robert Ford story. The title's... Um, slightly misleading in that respect, because that's, that's, that's how I saw it is, and, and don't get me wrong, we'll talk about Casey Affleck and his performance and the character, but he is also not likable. If we're talking about the train sequence, he's, he's present for the robbery, right? But he's masked up. We're not really yeah, seeing it through not, his yeah. eyes or. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, at that state, in this, in this stage of the film, we're still in the demystifying the Jesse James legend and that's what that scene does for me anyway that's how that's how i interpreted it is really the 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 whole boring thing it's a bit you know daft of me to say friend of the show joe mcdonald messaged me to say how beautiful the train sequence was and how beautifully shot it was he's a big deacons guy so uh shout out to joe and he's right you know the photography is beautiful and i just want to separate that from what i'm saying because i'm not bored with the photography the photography is beautiful but um it links into a, a note that i think you put forth Gally about like revisionist westerns too. I, I think that the, the genre expectations for me perhaps did me in a bit here because when I when I think of the great train robberies, you know, I don't know how many I could list, but probably <laughs> not too many. But um, um, you know that this this was kind of lacking for me. Maybe it's because one of the the biggest most climactic sequences happen so early on and we don't really know too much about the people when it's uh when it's happening like this is kind of a more of a slow labored a- approach to to the western um and, and it was something it took me a while to get on board with i think it's not tombstone is it let's be fair you know the idea that Wyatt Earp's depiction in that is very much a kind of action western even though 
and the, the, there's nothing, not to say terribly controversial, but there's nothing, they're not attempting high art, whereas this is, and from the title, from the length, from the, the shooting style, you could argue as you're watching it, you're like, oh, this could, this is a touch pretentious. Um, and I do wonder if that could be a barrier for some, especially when you're going into a Western, because you are expecting certain, there are certain genre conventions and certain expectations that are, that are afoot when, when you're working in this genre. It's interesting to see whether we're going to classify it as a Western, because it did come out at a time when there were three, four, I would say, probably high-profile films which were kind of labelled with the same tag, revisionist westerns. If you look at all four of them, they're completely different. Uh, you had 310 to Yuma, which is probably the one that's the most generically conventional, albeit one that's kind of a prestigious take on it. You have uh, uh, No Country for Old Men, which is not set in the Old West. It's playing around with western conventions, but uh, uh, bringing it forward in time. Uh, you had There Will Be Blood, which honestly doesn't really have much to do. It's not Western. It's set in the same era, but it has a completely different thing on its mind. And then there's this, which one thing that they pointed out in that documentary is that it's not Western because he never went West. Jesse James existed in the East of, of, of the United States. And uh, also yeah, it's Western is genre, isn't it? Of, of yeah, exactly. So uh, outlaws and cowboys. So Yeah, totally. And, and that's, I think, a, an interesting thing about it. I, you mentioned um, Terrence Malick, and I, I feel like more than anything else from Terrence Malick, if, if anything comes from Malick, days of it's, um, it's Days of Heaven. Yeah, the, the casting of Sam Shepard would anchor that in. And also Days mm. of Heaven being... We think of Terence Malick now probably in his late career, floaty, ethereal, everything is connected and uh, it's all ecstatic beauty kind of stuff. And and back in the Days of Heaven era, that wasn't what Terence Malick was doing. Days of Heaven's quite gritty and brutal in places and it's also quite short, which is... Uh, uh, surprising, I think, in in retrospect. It but, is, um, yeah. Isn't it like this, 90 minutes? Yeah, amazed. in and out. Um, this kind of also reminds me of something like um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, maybe as well. Like um, it's set, it's it's set in the West. It's uh, but it people ride horses and have six shooters. But um, <laughs> I think it's just the the setting that it's in, and it, it's that's a meticulous design too. The costumes and production design on McCabe and Mrs. Miller is incredible. Unforgiven as well a kind of revisionist See, un, uh, so that's yeah. where i draw the line because you know unforgiven is an incredible western once upon a time in the west good the bad and the ugly that's what i want i want leone i you know and then you know when yeah, there you, are moments I, I would of leone in this though you know when when um jesse comes out the smoke by the train that kind mm. of imagery is for me, quite the only and, and quite striking. But, but if, if you would you recommend this to someone who's into westerns? I think that's a dangerous kind of avenue to go down. Really. Well, we'll, we'll find out in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you have a discussion. I think if you're going to say to people, I think you more importantly, right? So I watched this with Melissa, and I was a little worried about the the pacing, and, and so, sometimes she doesn't kind of go too well with arty films or indie films so my warning was to her about that and i said you know the pacing might be a bit slow you know uh she loved it by the way she she gave it yeah i was it was ace but more importantly i said to her i never once mentioned a western i just mentioned it was um about a famous historical figure who and one thing i now want to 
segue us into thematically, I said it was about someone's decline and demise mentally, uh, and it's a drama between two people, and it's kind of Shakespearean, it, and then the whole story, um, the Sophoclean kind of tragedy. Uh, you know, we haven't, we're a bit fragmented in the plot here, sorry, Gally, but you know, Jesse James gives Robert Ford the gun that will end his life, you know, those kind of things in it. But from a uh, psychosis point of view, we understand from the narrator at the very beginning that Jesse James is a guerrilla from the Civil War who's never really given up on it. And I think there's a PTSD thing here with a breakdown after he, he beats Arthur and it, he's psychotic and he is almost bipolar in the film we found because of his unpredictability and what this Jesse who's, he says all of America know who I am or something like that. I'm trying to remember the quote exactly. All of America feels highly of me. Um, and he's aware of his celebrity. Um, just an off piece thing. Apparently he used to, he had a very good relationship with the press from someone in the civil and he used to send stories about what he'd done to get, but, um, and there's that man. And I think he's aware of it. There's that, that story when he, he tells Robert Ford that he reminded him, you brought him to mind about George and says, uh, it was Jesse slit his throat in the most menacing fashion. So he's aware of the malice and the reputation and the fear he can instill in people. But right now in this film is a, um, a character study for me of how that weight is too much and you're ending what, what you could bear. And also along with that, it's the obsession of Robert Ford and, and the, this awkward person who can't quite deal with what's going on around him. And because of that, he's, uh, almost ostracized and, and it, it never meet your heroes the expectation of life and it's very very valid film for today's society that you show to young people like what what you everyone's obsessed with fame at the minute when you're young and look at the price it costs robert ford here and it's an early example of no Um, i i totally agree patrick i mean the the celebrity aspect that uh the director Andrew Dominique. Well, Brad Pitt really, spoke very much about. I think yeah. he, he was. He, yeah, was that they they well. hone into is is absolutely valid, apt for the era um, that we're we're living in right now. And 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 just to go back onto the your assessment of the character study of Jesse James as well, it is watching somebody try and maintain control while all around him starts to fall apart. One of the things that I I, I thought was really quite revealing about the character that that kind of makes you side a little bit with Robert Ford, although we'll get into it, um, is that a bit like a, a bit like a king who manipulates his his court and his pawns. Uh, he plays everyone off each other, doesn't he? And it and the you see it done. So when Ed knows that when he comes to visit him, that he's he's basically doomed. Um and then you think that the moment he goes to see Dick Little it's like he's about to do the same with Dick Little, but no, he's he's picking the one person he knows who he probably can't trust to do a deed that he knows he will not tell anyone else. And everyone's everyone's sort of playing off each other, and 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 the way that all the characters intersect, it, it can be a little bit much. Um, but I think the film and its pacing, we can get into the narration as well. You you're a, you're able to kind of digest it and. As you go through, but obviously for some, you know, for, for you, Matt, that was something that probably there was a threshold, but the, certainly the celebrity aspects 
with the Robert Ford character is, is for me the most fascinating bit of the uh, aspect of the whole film. I have another issue with films that are, that split their time with two protagonists uh, in, in the uh, 90 minutes, because that winds me up because you can't do that efficiently. Now this film is twice as long and I, I still don't think it achieves it. I, I don't know who, I, I guess Jesse James is not the main character really when you, when you really break it down. But um, I, I don't. I didn't know enough about him to care. A lot of the things you're saying are, are new to me. Like I didn't watch a documentary. I'm not a history buff, and I honestly shouldn't need to be to to yeah to I get that. that character. But the, the what you were just saying about celebrity culture, I wondered how much was intentional, and I think I was being naive. I think the director is smart enough to know what he's doing. I think Brad Pitt, who's also producing, does it is smart enough to know that it's a it's a comment on that. But it did remind me more of the Mark Chapman, John Lennon relationship yeah. that you mentioned earlier. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, that was my initial go-to because I'm a Beatle freak. So, um, and, and a lot of people were saying it, there was a, a gay connotation too, which I didn't get. No. I, I, I didn't think he wanted to sleep with him. I think it was just hero worship. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It, it's like yeah. a schoolgirl with his box of treasures, you know. You, you and, could misread yeah. the scene where he's watching him bathe. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think people do misread yeah, that scene for the homoeroticism forward to, to Jesse. It's a petulant kill to get his name in history and tied to that person. I think the Mark Chapman, John Lennon connection is valid because I think he wanted, he loved John Lennon and he, it, he wanted to be tied to him in, in history. Their names are connected now forever yeah. through that most negative of, of actions. And I think that's probably a very similar. And it's thing going on it's, it's, uh, it's an intimacy as well, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You took the words right oh, around. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's an intimacy that goes probably beyond something that it would, it would be reductive and simplistic to say that, oh, he just, uh, he was a repressed homosexual that wanted to sleep with Jesse James. It's, it's, it's a reductive and, and, and based it's on an what we see in the film, it's an, yeah, it's an, it's an, uh, it's also, I mean, that, that also tends to be tied into some pretty homophobic feelings, generally speaking, where people say that he was a repressed homosexual and thus he definitely must have wanted to kill someone. Whereas this is far more of a kind of parasocial relationship or, a, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an, a worship of the iconography. It's a yearning to be a somebody. It's, it's, there's a, there's a lot that, that goes into it. And I, what I liked about this film in, in, I've, maybe this was something that, that was frustrating and maybe it was frustrating for a lot of viewers is that, um, it takes a probably more of a novelistic approach. They say that most of the, the, the dialogue comes straight from a book. And I got the impression that this one was much in the same way that like Coppola was sitting with a, with a book on The Godfather rather than a script. I think, um, possibly that ties into the tortuous editing process as well. Cause you think to, uh, editing a manuscript into a book, is uh, uh, it feels like there's a lot more options available to you than editing an assembly cut of a film into a finished film, even though there are myriad options to reassemble and reshuffle your sequences. I feel like possibly that um, in terms of the way the plot is structured and in terms of the, the intended emotional meaning of each individual part of the, the, the film, maybe that's why it was such a difficult film to... To, to finish and a difficult film to sell in that it's not very um it doesn't take you on an emotional through line as much as a lot of other films do 
No, it's very, it's quite, it's quite episodic in, yeah. in its depiction. And, and, and they, they try and connect those episodes with these time lapses, which then the narration comes in. And, and I, I assume it's a, it's a, it's also a method of just saying how much time is passing. You know, there yeah. are seasons that go by in the film, but you could really watch it and not even realize that there are, you know, there are years passing here, not necessarily days. Cause especially when you, when you try and track the, Dick Little, uh, Wood Height stuff. You like, you try and work out where does that current, where does that sit in the timeline where Jesse James is also visiting all the other gang members and trying to find Jim Cummings. I can understand a frustration that you might have felt, Matt, and other audience members might feel where they're like, this doesn't feel as clean as it probably should be for a film. Like maybe Devlin's pointing to an, a, a process in the editing, in the script editing process that has been skipped because they're going straight to source and shooting from it. I don't know. I think Devlin nailed it there. He said the emotional through line. That was, uh, you're just taking it right out of my brain and saying it exactly as it is. That's, that's it. The, the singular protagonist, the emotional through line, the things that I'm used to seeing, but was, but have been denied. And I, I don't think for good reason. I think if you, if you are going to stray from the typical storytelling, uh, that we're all all used to, you have to do it for a reason. You have to improve it. And for me, it it didn't have the the merits of of typical westerns, typical character studies. And for for a, a running time that long, uh, I I just found it kind of inexcusable that it that it was so uh, so muddled. Really, I, did, I just did you didn't... start to feel sorry for Robert Ford in the final act? Uh, no, I, I have an issue with Casey Affleck. There's some recent stuff that happened with Casey Affleck. I tried to detach sure. that. Um, but that's just, that's a silly thing to say. I should, I can't blame that. I mean, I, I, he has a pathetic kind of energy that was perfect for the role. And he, and he, he is really good yeah, at that, it. That broken voice really adds to the character, doesn't it? Yeah, I, but I didn't feel for him. A, a lot of it, um, I used to have a friend that w- would complain that films left him cold. So I hate saying it. But the film left me cold. The characters left me cold. I was a big fan of Manchester by the Sea, but I know that came under the shadow of things that he, he's been part of. Whatever he was up to, I don't know. Yeah, there's that famous um, footage of Brie Larson refusing to shake his hand. Um, and the final thing, I, I do start feeling sorry for him. And, and I, I wondered if Dominic was trying to rewrite history in a way to to help Robert Ford uh, get the historical acknowledgement that he um it's almost been written out of you know like it's just been dismissed and the, the question of why does someone who murdered and a wanted villainous outlaw who's notorious and has been so bad for so many years killing someone and he's been instructed to do so by the police as well he's lawful lawful in his engagement um hated like absolutely hated and and dismissed by everybody but the the uh, myth of jesse james is so revered throughout history i don't think he was trying to um conjure up sympathy for him i i I saw it more as a cautionary tale um especially the way that um so so my favorite part of the film is the final 40 minutes which sounds ridiculous doesn't it (laughs) when you say a lot of yeah that basically that what would normally be a half of a film is uh is my favorite bit but the the essentially once the that's when we're full on robert ford's narration yeah the 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 build-up to the assassination 
the scene uh, that directly um, precedes that and then everything that goes beyond it. So the, the examination of Robert Ford and the way that everything turns and the way that I see it as a cautionary tale is how Robert Ford himself tries to reframe the narrative. So when he's doing the stage depictions, that to me is the most interesting part of the film. Not only because Sam Rockwell is doing some stellar, stellar work, <laughs> but, but also because Casey Affleck is also doing it. You know, you see a confidence in the initial depictions and he's, there's a, there's a one beautiful shot and it's, uh, it's done in every, every time a film has anybody on, on stage, they'll always have a spotlight shot. And, but it's really, really poignant in this film, I think, because that is, the whole point is that Robert Ford's finally got his moment in the spotlight. He's trying to reframe the narrative. He's trying to show it as, uh, you know, a bit like how the film kind of blurs the lines. Like, does Jesse James keep him around because he wants to die a martyr and cement his leg- legacy? Or does he literally keep him around because he's, uh, his, his fatal flaw is that he is, um, he, he needs that devotion. He needs people to love him and adore him. And the film asks that question as it goes through. And at the end, you see Sam Rockwell's depiction of Jesse James kind of deteriorate. Initially, I think the the narrator says like he's a really bad actor, but Robert Ford showed some talent. And then later on, he becomes the Jesse James that we... He starts showing this, this familiar gait. Yeah, to, yeah. Mm-hmm. This, the same gait, the same haunted expression. I, all of that stuff is great. And, and when he's speaking to Zoe Deschanel at the end and he, you know, to me, that's the bit where if you did have any sympathy for him, you'd still be like, pal, what did you expect was going to happen? When he's like, I expected applause. The only bit of sympathy I have is that he's in an age. He has grown wiser to the fact that he was so naive to think that mm-hmm, everyone yeah. would just be like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course we love you for shooting Jesse James in the back unarmed. I was on the cusp of. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And I feel that's more to do with Affleck's performance, mm. uh, the character that did draw a little bit of something at the, at the end, because Matt challenged us to say when we laughed or we emotively responded to this film. And Matt, Matt, are you telling me you didn't laugh when Jeremy Renner gets shot and they, and they just go, um, Wood Heights, <laughs> Wood Heights dying. <laughs> do you want to come up and send him on his way? <laughs> Wood? You're a good fellow, Wood. Oh, I sure hope you're not in frightful pain, Wood. I get you something to drink, but I'm afraid you just choke on it. Little Ida's gonna miss you. So is the rest of the family. But also, Gally, because I know you're a fan of the shallow grave, naked, dead body. <laughs> when they chuck him in the. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Just kicking, kicking snow over his kicking dead blue ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do love how uh, how clumsy that is. I mean, it's proper naked gun stuff, obviously. I know but it's it, intentional. It show that, like, I, that's why I'm falling into a trap because it's totally intentional. I get it. I but, get um, why he's but doing also it. the. Uh, uh, I guess it just shows that. Um, I guess we're used to like you know crack shooting like this thing with the you know where you where you do the little trigger thing at the same time. Yeah. Whereas. And they, and they probably yeah. suck. Like Jesse James said he got shot a couple of times. And it's like, but the, you know, he had like bullet wounds everywhere, but, um, you know, he was still 
alive and i just thought i, I guess it, it undercuts the idea of uh like the old three amigos thing of you know somebody popping up on top of a saloon and then you just and then you just take yeah. it and they just fall i think i've seen fine. three amigos too many times that's the issue have you seen the magnificent seven the recent depiction with friend of the show vincent d'onofrio by the way hey. just, just managed to get that in there um that film falls into all those trappings you know of you know it's a proper it's tombstone again it's a it's an action western and they can be fun they can be fun but they're you know they're (laughs) probably not true to life there's uh there's some cgi um blood here and bullet holes too that i i want oh i think i think it did okay in here because it's it's kind of a washed out palette and it works all right but uh, it was interesting that dominic wanted to give the flash of um of graphic kind of uh grotesqueness with with um wood his head popping open and then also with ed miller there's that close-up of the back of his head exploding which interesting like bouts of violent like graphic stuff there you can do it practically too there's no excuse you can do it you can you can put a squib on someone's head i guess if you do it if you do it carefully but you know cgi blood and cgi fire and yeah and EGI water have still got a long way to go. You've got to be really careful with it. And, and things like this that are, that are trying to be historically accurate. And like, like you said, it's, it's a very carefully kind of nurtured film. And I, it took me out of it just for an instant. My, my, I didn't have an issue with that. My, my issue was that we'd seen this really clumsy, inaccurate gunfight. Cause I did have, I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, mm, a bit clumsy. And then Robert has a very accurate one shot. Well, which kind of undercuts the. Well, what uh, that does do is prove that he he could achieve the final. I, I shot know, I know, he, I know it's to do with that. But at the time, just during this, scene, I was like, "Whoa, okay, he has a clean." And I suppose he's less panicked and he's sitting down in his state. But um, sure. Well, and also there's uh, a little bit of uh, setup and payoff. I think he there's a line where he says, "I'll shoot you in the head" when they're when they're yeah, running through, yeah. his, through his stuff. Which again, there's a, is... there's a lot of that though. You know, like there's Jesse when he says to uh, Charlie, "You ever considered suicide?" Um, there's a lot of I really like the script for that. Well, it's and that's the that's the Shakespearean stuff. I mean, it's it's not it's not particularly subtle. But it's um it's there if you want if 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 you wanna if you wanna look into it as a, a, a Julius Caesar this is a tragedy, tragedy. yeah yeah because that's how I that's how I rationalised some of the periphery uh, peripheral characters when I so when I when when I gave my four star review or but fourteen oh, years ago Matt, um, oh sandwiches yeah. it's been revealed the great reveal why, why did Patrick say that you gave it four and Dev gave it five what did you say to suggest to Patrick that um it was the pace. The pace at the time, Gally wasn't, uh, said it was too long. Yeah, it was too long. And I would have probably cut the dit little wood height banging of the mother. Or should I call stuff. you little dick? <laughs> little dick indeed. Or dick, or dick massive. Um, but either, either way, um, I would have, I would have probably trimmed that down and kept on the, the central focus of, like you say, the through line, the emotional through line of the film. But if you apply that Shakespearean fatal flaw, then Dit Littles is his womanizing. Wood High is his overprotective, uh, his overprotectiveness of his family name. Yeah. Uh, the, all these things then contribute to their demise. Now, obviously, as a piece, if you're not into it, then those things will get lost. But rewatching it 14 years later, I really kind of got, got hooked into that kind of, oh, it's all, it all, it all works and it all, 
it all tracks. But again, if you're not emotionally invested, then all that stuff is for nothing, right? Well, emotionally invested stuff, Matt, this is what I've written down here. And it, it's an interesting one because maybe I have the little, uh, the more hold on it from my curiosity, my curiosities over the years. Um, when I was a child about cowboys, um, you'll see a grown man cry with Doc Holliday in Tombstone when he's on the bed looking at his toes, and that's me. Um, but with this, with Jesse James, I think the film really worked for me on a on an emotional level and kind of through the whole sadness of the whole thing, the whole inevitability, the, the spiralling towards something that I can't change or they can't change. I've... And what happens to me in that final scene, uh, Jesse's final scene when he, when he dies at the portrait, the, the painting, excuse me, there's this wonderful marriage of sound and vision that get to quite an overwhelming level for me with the music ramping up and the, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? The, I get quite wrought with it and I, find myself uh, like i don't want this for robert ford because i know what it what path it leads him down and i don't want it for jesse james because he is a hero of mine and i don't i don't want that you, you don't want that for your heroes and it's an upsetting thing Helen mccrory the other day it's an upsetting thing when someone you love or admire dies young or not before uh before well before their time and that i just found like i get quite overwhelmed in that scene but I also get quite overwhelmed when Robert gets shot by Edward O'Kelly. And I think it's, again, it's the marriage of sound and vision, the narration, the music, the inevitability of it. And it's not because I care for Robert, really. I, I'm very interested in him. I definitely care for Jesse Moore, which is so interesting from a historical point of view, which everyone has the same feelings. Because I do see, I've, I've watched this a few times now, but I do see the uh mental state of mind and breakdown of Jesse and that is what gets me emotionally involved in him because he, he can't control himself anymore and he's unsure of who he is anymore and he's lost he's lost his uh, identity almost and even I think I think the film does a very clever thing of showing that he's accepted his fate which is an emotive thing to me anyway. And, and, and to add to this, just as a side note, when, um, he, when his wife Z, um, when Mary Louise Parker shows her grief, grief always gets me in the film that, I mean, that really cuts through me and she's, that grief is, that'll get me welling up big time. And that, that's where I, that's where I am from an emotional level. I, um, yeah, I'm like, on the cover, I don't know, I kind of well up, but it's not like proper tears because, especially with Robert, um, it's just the sorrow, the, the sorrow and the sadness of it all reach a crescendo for me. And I think the film does that really well. Uh, I think that there's something about the staging of Jesse's, uh, death scene that I hadn't noticed before till last night. Really interesting just to ask you. And I think he presents his back to them, an opportunity to them twice rather than the once that I always thought. Oh, really? When he puts the gun belt down, he's looking at the window. Mm -hmm. I think he would have preferred to have died there looking at his daughter. And I never got that mm -hmm. before till last night. And then he gives them a more obvious reason and chance to do it, presenting his back to them on the painting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think it's a wonderfully directed scene. It's like a last sermon 
because I think his daughter is reading the Bible, yeah. which again, yeah, or it's songs or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about Shakespeare before and, uh, um, you've also invoked the Bible a bit there. And I, I do tend to think that can be a, an easy way out sometimes for, for films like this. I've heard sure. it done before, you know, if you invoke, Oh, he's a bit, he's like Judas, you know, yeah. or, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit too, simplistic for me and and someone like mark commode who i've put in critics corner this week i don't know if we should do it though because it's really mean um, no do it you it. may as well go now matt i know this is film of the year and i know that uh it wasn't yours he said that it was better than there will be blood which got my back up immediately he said it was the best film of the year and if if he's not careful he's going to be in a, a regular in critics corner because he rarely calls it right these days i think i've been looking back at a lot of his youtubes and he's 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 gonna be with uh, ebert if he's not careful because i i don't consider myself a, a critic at all i know we talk about films on here and we kind of reminisce about things and and talk about whether things still did the things still hold up and i i'm kind of 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 the mind that we change the movies don't change we, we we're the ones that have altered like like we talk about gremlins, like gremlins is the same. <laughs> like when I, if I'm 10 years old or now, gremlins is the same. Um, we're the ones that have changed. So I don't consider myself a, a critic at all. And I, but I do consider myself a critic of the critics. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I think that he's, he attacks things from a personal point of view a lot of the time. And the, the, the reviews are more about him than the film. So I'm kind of endeavoring to just talk about the film if I can and take myself out of it. But. He says there's a slightly biblical thing to do with Judas. And it's like, come on, Mark, you can't, you can't just say that. You can't just have a throwaway line. Yeah, but like he says that. that to give you an understanding of what, but what, am, what do I understand from there's a slightly biblical thing to do with Jesus? I mean, I think he needs to interpret that a bit. He, he said it's got heart and soul and something that hints at a life beyond this. And I didn't see that film. Like, but I, but I do think that like, maybe you did, maybe listeners will. And that's the beauty of film that people are going to read different things into it. But I genuinely don't know what he's talking about when he says it's got heart and soul and something that hints at a life beyond this. I mean, I, I didn't get any of that warmth. I definitely got the existentialism of the film. Again, I think that word is used to divert from, from. We, we've discussed today though, just the, the inevitability of where they're going to and. The ponderous performance of Pitt, like especially when he's at the lake and he's shooting fish randomly, uh, when he breaks down after Arthur's beating, there, there are definite moments in there um, portraying somebody who is coming to terms with their immortality and their their fate and where where they're heading. I I, I certainly get the existentialism and the, the, that kind of bigger picture in the film. If you watch it in a certain mood with the music being as it is, with the images being so kind of slow and and and, and the, the editing style is, you know, it's not this, this is not going to cut every two seconds. So you end up just kind of getting washed over. Now, maybe you have a kind of out of body experience as you're watching the film and perhaps like the um, the narrative aspects of it don't necessarily impact as much as the i hate to say like the spiritual but the just some of the imagery is just is just very it's very evocative so maybe it just takes you to a different place i don't know and another quote was um it was a study in melancholy 
And you mentioned sadness earlier. And when somebody says it's a study in melancholy, it's two hours, 40 minutes long. I mean, just give me a break. You know, like it's like what, and you said meditative, like one man's meditative is, and and hypnotic was the other thing. I Not everyone likes yoga. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. And a lot of these reviews that I read, it was really frustrating because when you don't like a film, you go online, you go, oh, I'm going to find someone else who hates it. And it was really, really hard because everything I read was, wow. was praise for this film. Everybody loves, it's the, it's the most beautiful thing ever shot. Everybody loves um, Raymond. You know, they're, they're putting, they're putting it up there with the greatest films ever made. And I just, I just have to object at, at that, at that. I have a, a, a similar thing, which is that. Uh, I do get emotionally in, invested in it. And I think the, the scenes that you're singling out, especially the, the sequences that focus more on, on, on Robert's, um, uh, turmoil, uh, the, there's the sequence where he knows that he's going to have to shoot Jesse is, is, is just so gripping. And I think a, a large part of it and possibly a reason why some people might reject the film is that what it forces you, it feels uncomfortable. There's a, there's a discomfort that runs throughout in the way that everyone interacts with themselves or with, with each other. But I don't know whether that discomfort extends to people having to confront parts of themselves and the less uh, that possibly our worst impulses as people that have we ever been a sycophant? Have we ever indulged people too much? Have we ever, uh, shown that like the cowardice, the, the use of the word coward is like, does anyone want to confront the idea that they themselves might be a coward, even in the smallest possible ways that it resonates in your own life? Like, you know, did, did I ever allow myself to sublimate my own personality to someone else's, uh, in, in a situation like, I, I see that the the callowness of of him as a character, and I just feel like that's what I think I'm gripped by. And like you were saying, Patrick, that like the inevitability of his fate and the way he's just we're watching him, and we of course we know what's 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 coming. We know what he's going to do, and we know what it's going to do to him after he does it. And I think that's probably the existentialism, because I think you're right, Matt, that these are words that get thrown around, and they get thrown around as shorthand and. It's a way of conferring, um, status or, or, or depth on something which maybe doesn't have it. There are a lot of films which are long and there are a lot of films which are very pretty and there are a lot of films which have florid language. And, and I think, um, when we talk about like the, the vast, uh, shadow that someone like Terrence Malick has cast over an entire type of cinema, and the reason why I don't really consider this to be in, in that, that category is that I, I don't think they're trying to do the same thing. I think Andrew Dominic has a very specific thing that he wants to, to do here, whether it chimes with people or not is, an, is another thing, but I think he has something very different on his mind than, than Terrence Malick does when he makes a film. Well, um, what you're describing there speaks, it sounds an awful lot like, like the revenant to me. You know, that is a film that probably had some, some, some Good similar, example. some similar kind of critiques when it first came out of like, you know, technically brilliant, uh, number one. Um, why that's a selling point that they use natural light. Yeah. Brilliant. Well done. Doesn't change the price of fish if the film's actually entertaining, but from a technical standpoint, yeah, phenomenal. But it's all these kind of, it's a spiritual experience. So that's it. You, you've, you've nailed it exactly because that is a film that is admirable by, you know, from the Academy's perspective, it's got a central performance that's been lauded and I have absolutely no 
Mm. interest and it didn't jive with me either and and considering it is beautifully shot by a cinematographer who i really respect in emmanuel lebetsky and has a beautiful score by ruchi sakamoto and i really love the score i can listen to that on its own but as a film experience it left me so cold so i do understand where you're coming from with this which that's that's the same experience for me it's a long serious film that i do not give a shit about if you want to put them side by side and i understand why um, I think it's a good comparison, but I think this film, personally, for me, does a far better job of giving me something to grab onto. I couldn't get into DiCaprio's character. I couldn't get into Hardy's, uh, that much. He was more, in, he was better than DiCaprio for me. And Donald Gleason was the one I was trying to hang on to, but it wasn't enough. And in this, I'm, Paul, we haven't spoken about Paul Devlin's best mate, Schneider. <laughs> that was a big hook for me. I, that really was a hook for me when this film came out. I was, I was chuffed to see him. I really like him. I'm interested in him. And uh, Gally, you know, if we were going to be brutal editors and cut the dick little stuff, I think we lose a lot of the, the reasons that propel the, the, the journey for, for a lot of people. But, but little, uh, he's a really interesting character to me. I love the way he delivers the dialogue. I think he's brilliant in that. He, he, he's able to he's able to do the sudden charm stuff that uh, Val Val Kilmer delivers in Tombstone, where you you but you know what I mean. He's able to um he's able to kind of flex a little bit and, ha- and have a bit more life. You know, the one that kind of gets lost on me out of all the characters, and maybe it's indicative of um well, he's obviously been hugely successful, but doesn't really land too many punches outside of Hurt Locker is Jeremy Renner mm. is is fine. I'm not knocking him, but he does get kind of lost in the shuffle. The one that the one that always the one that always yeah. I gravitate towards, but it's just because it's Sam Rockwell is Sam Rockwell because yeah. you know Dev, Devlin mentioned yeah. about um Robert Ford being the coward, but who's the one who didn't shoot? It's the brother. Mm. It's Sam Rockwell. So who who was who was really yeah. the coward? He's pointing the gun. He knows what's gonna happen. And and the word coward's really interesting because at the time, the narrator, when uh, Charlie shoots himself in the chest, the narrator says he became everything the American people wanted him to become, which I see to be a coward, the coward's way out, uh, taking his own life because he amidst the sorrow. But again, watching him demise and and demur and, and really uh, turn in on himself is, is a really great thing on this film. But the word coward, like, was... Was Robert Ford a coward for shooting him or was he just protecting himself or was he, you know, from the police, from Jesse, did he know he was going to kill him? But the word coward for me is shooting someone in the back. They're men of honor, they're, they're cowboy, you know, at that time men don't shoot men in the back, right? And that's what the word coward is there. But was he? And then lie about it and say it was an accident. I, I have a question though, and, and it's slightly loaded, especially to, to Matt, but, um, this is just in general. Robert McKee, voiceover is lazy. What are we thinking about the narration in this? Because um, I have read some reviews, Matt, that that have kind of said uh, that it's a little bit too much in this. What does every film textbook say that voiceover, you know, makes a film inferior? But weirdly, like some of my favorite films ever made have, have utilized voiceover it's very you're odd you're gonna like, you're um, gonna take it away from taxi driver you're gonna take travis bickle's internal monologue away i'm not sure absolutely not i mean they didn't talk about um very specific things necessarily not that i can recall anyway but i was thinking more goodfellas which is was described as a miracle in the way that it lines up 
voiceover with the action for the entirety of, of the film. I, I, I think I spoke to you, Devlin, about it. And, uh, there's actually multiple characters in Goodfellas, um, on the voiceover. It's really incredibly done. And, and that's one of my, my favorites. But again, it, it's, it's a phrase I hate, but it's the exception that proves the rule in, in many ways. Uh, I, I've made a list here of five, my, my, my five greatest sins. Uh, it, it's the Forrest Whitaker, uh, species award for <laughs> obvious exposition, uh, with, with the, the Hugh Ross voiceover, which is a fascinating story. I don't know if anyone read up about the Hugh Ross yeah. thing, but we can, we can get yeah, into that. First assistant editor. Right. Um, we'll, I guess we'll do that later, but the, the number five, uh, the sting of his mustache against their cheeks as his kid's face brushes his you know if you can imagine like if every film did this it would drive you insane like describing what is happening on screen specifically i mean th- this one is almost acceptable uh, it, it's just a sec this one is almost acceptable it wasn't because this one <laughs> describes a sensation and it clues us into a perception of the character which i i like and it also endears him to us which there wasn't enough of for my money and it also, I've also included that at number five because it, it differentiates the four that I'm about to, to give you. Oh God. So, um, number four, theirs was a wandering existence as they're shown wandering and existing. Uh, <laughs> n- number three, she wiped her pink hands on an apron over a shot of her wiping her hands on an apron. Uh, we don't see her do that when he says that. Wiping her hands on an apron. He is right there. Uh, <laughs> but we can't see her pink hands. I think he, I think he says it, then we see it. <laughs> well, it's her hands that we can't see, the but I assume they're also pink. The apron is well. Uh, number two. If spoken to, he would fidget and grin. Cut to a shot of Brad Pitt fidgeting and grinning when spoken to. I thought that was that's uh, Robert. Robert. Talking about, uh, sorry, you're right. That's Robert. And number one, uh, Bob remained at the cottage and slowly migrated from room to room. He walked into the master bedroom. All of this is seen as it's read. I mean, it could be an SNL spoof at this point. It could be turned into this is a when skit. He gives himself the, the nub finger and he holds it up to the sunlight. I, I You're telling me what is physically and visually happening on screen. And you're telling me what the character is, is thinking too. I mean, Surely the point of a close-up of an actor is to emote and to, to, to give you a sense of what they might be feeling, not to tell you specifically. Uh, and it, it's, it's these, um, moments of it specifically lining up the description and the visual are identical. And, uh, I just can't abide any of, any of that. Mm. I, yeah, those, those specific examples are, um, you could argue are, are probably not necessary, but there are other bits of narration that I think really do color and fill in some of the blanks and also provide that kind of mythical, almost like demigod status of, uh, of Jesse James. Rooms seemed hotter when he was in them. Rains fell straighter. Clocks slowed. Sounds were amplified. He considered himself a Southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. He regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to.
he had seen another summer under in Kansas City, Missouri. And on September 5th, in the year 1881, he was 34 years old. Hey, Matt. I hear what you're saying. Don't care. Love it. Um, uh, fee, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm coming back in a minute, so go, go for it. Uh, B, it, uh, the majority of it I find is a very good place setter and a very good, uh, passage of time. We, we, after this, let's talk about Deakins and his, um, his specific lenses that he used in this. But right now, just to give you a picture sense of it, it, Framing stuff like an old Western photo with the blurred edges, um, along with a narration, is deeply cinematic to me. Um, and I'm deeply on board and I'm kind of, uh, enchanted by it. And I think that was with the, with, um, Nick K. Warren Ants' music. I think that's exactly what they wanted. I like the sound of the narrator's voice. Um, apparently Zui Deschanel read an iteration of it, um, which, which went away. And what we're hearing a lot. She did the whole thing. She was going to be the. Narrator. Uh, they did a they did a version of it, and it didn't work. So they stuck with Hugh Rosses, who was uh, he was asked by the editor to do a guideline narration to help him with the pacing of the edit. And he's got this lovely Western voice. Is the only way I can describe it that they decided to stay with. Apparently, some of what you hear was a first uh, recording, and then when he sat down in the recording booth with the script he got too nervous and it wasn't quite what they wanted so they stuck with the shitty recording that they did to start with which was really cool well i found a quote from him that said uh, the, the choice to keep him as the voice of a narrator was a fuck you to the warner brothers yeah they wanted zoe deschanel or, or, or an anus to, but imagine morgan freeman doing the narration it'd be just it'd be no it, honestly it'd be distracting like the, 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 the other I, name was martin sheen and i would totally yeah. go for martin sheen right. over this guy the, the, this unknown voice is like exactly Jesse James is a myth. It's the mythology of it. This unknown voice narration. I feel like there's, there's the myth building and Mm. the, and the kind of almost history lesson of it uh, uh, as well, which I know we don't need to fully, uh, we've spoken about the history lesson, not, not needing to fully know the background of someone to understand where they are, but as a time and setting, uh, placer, I think it's, it's actually quite authentic and, I'd probably listen to it as an audio book, that mm. guy. I think it would be a confusing extra layer of star persona if you shoved another recognizable voice in there. <laughs> Stick when... Martin Sheen. I think it's yeah. very important that it wasn't Brad or Casey though, because you can't trust that if it, if it's them. It has yeah. to be uh, an absolute. Yeah. Can, can I come back just a little bit there? I, I, I found it really ironic that cineasts that everywhere that love this thing and, uh, you know, but, and raise it above there will be blood. Um, but I, I, I think that this incessant voiceover renders it kind of impotent compared to, to there will be blood. Like a film like 2001 took 25 minutes before anyone said anything. And then there will be blood has the guts to begin with no dialogue for about 15 minutes before anyone speaks. It's pure cinema, pure imagery, sound and performance. And that would be like, I know we're not arguing which is better because that's the, it's not the time to do it, but like that would be exhibit A as far as which film uh, I I prefer. And I I think people calling this a masterpiece over something like there will be blood is, 
I, I find that kind of unusual. I just, I just think that people are leaning towards something that's less obvious when there's a real masterpiece right in front of you in 2007. And it's, it, just, just, you know. just as a comparison then, speaking about, uh, not really getting emotionally on board here with a, a straw, a draw to it. There will be blurred as quite cold, unlikable characters in there. Do, do you get emotionally involved in them? I'm emotionally involved. I don't necessarily like the characters, you know, through their behavior. But, um, I mean, I mean, his son, HW, obviously you kind of lean towards, but sure. mm. again, I, the central performance is kind of a damning one. He's a, he, he's every aspect of it. Like Devlin was talking about, it's almost like every negative aspect of you put up there on a, on an enormous screen and you can kind of engage with that. Is it direction then, Matt? So, I mean, we've not really talked about Andrew Dominique, who um, has definitely got a pension for depicting psychopaths. If anyone's seen Chopper with uh, with Eric Banner, <laughs> uh, which I, I've seen, it's one of those weird films that when I speak to friends uh, back home, it's always on their list as like, yeah. oh, I love Chopper. I love Chopper. <laughs> Rough lads from provincial towns absolutely love it, yeah. I mean, I, I could be negative about Dominic and say, I, I'm not, I didn't enjoy this one, so I'm not going to track down anything else he does, but I'm really interested in the Nick Cave project that he's done. And I've also heard that oh, yeah. all of his films are very disparate and mm-hmm. tonally and stylistically very different, different. So I'm not going to be too. I, I didn't get on board with killing them softly. I had a similar thing. I really wanted uh, to that, like it. That, uh, distanced me too much, Matt. Yeah. And I, could, I, I, Scoop, I thought yeah. Scoop McNary was very good in it. I found, I found it was a very, Killing Me Softly had this, um, background motif about the recession and, and the kind of, in 2008. And I found that overbearing and, and repetitive, almost like they were nagging me like, this is why we're doing this. This is the world we live in. And I'd take Jesse James with these, um, showing men along against the backdrop of huge American landscapes trying to find their way in the world. And that is helped by, Roger Deakins. Um, and I jizz my pants every time I see that train take over the dolly because it's fucking amazing. I'd never seen anything like that. That was the, that was the shot in the Well, cinema. I think it's a heart like, back to that famous old Western shot of the train coming towards the camera when people were fleeing yeah. the cinema because they thought a train was going to come through the screen. And that shot, it, that whole sequence, how can you say this is boring, Matt, when your mind and your eyes are so stimulated by the beauty of what's going on? But maybe that was a, maybe that's a, 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 a time and a, a time and a place thing. Cause we, we watched it on a big screen at a time when we were all literally studying this and just getting into it. And, and like to see that, to see this, that, that ghostly sequence of, of uh of of the the way the light comes through the trees at the angle and and it's the 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 lanterns lighting the faces it's it's just it's so perfectly done but it may just be uh yeah maybe it was just a time and a place us we were, we were younger and very impressionable but uh, uh, the the ed miller shack for me is we've, we've touched upon it but the the cinematography in that whole section even when he's stalking him in the forest and we see the stars we come down I just think there's, I don't know, the scope of this film, the big American landscapes compared to, and then we get quite a lot of close-ups. You know, we go wide, we go tight, we can wide so they, again. They shot uh, Super 35 rather than anamorphic in, or, in order to be able to get those uh, those close-ups kind of really gritty and, and, and intimate. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's the Leone uh, connection. Yeah, but it, it definitely has the intimacy. There's, there's a line from Matt's favourite narrator, um, as if the two were meshed in an intimate communication, and those close-ups really add to that from Jesse and, uh, and, and Robert. And those moments are like... Uh, there's one where Jesse's looking through a window and his face is really obscured, but they're looking at each other and you just don't, I know the narration is going on Matt, but you don't know what they're actually thinking, looking at each other. And there's a lot of that I, I like as well. Well, I, I can't be dragged into hating on Roger Deakins <laughs> cause I, I will be. Joe will be on the phone. By everyone around me. Yeah. But also, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to do that, but that, there is a quote, an actual quote from Andrew Dominic that I think addresses what the 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 void between us here is he said you can have a movie that looks like shit and the people are great who cares how it looks you can have a movie that looks amazing and if you don't care about the people in the film who gives a shit how it looks and that's andrew dominic saying that so that that covers it I mean, he even knows. I'm sure he knows. Well, maybe he knows, he knows that done. it's not going to connect with everybody. And, and, and that's, and that speaks volumes as to the fact that basically no one went to see this in the cinema. And as I, I, I asked the question or I, I posed the question, uh, when we, when we just before we got into the synopsis about the idea that I'm not wholly convinced that this film has even managed to get the reappraisal. Let's lift it up higher. I know, Matt, you found some reviews that have said, Hey, in 2007, this was better than There Will Be Blood, but I don't think it's actually caught on. Like, I don't get the sense in the, no, hash- it hasn't. In, in the hashtag world that even people give a monkeys about this, even though scholars, and if you went into like 1001 movies you need to watch, I'm sure Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, it's probably one of the reasons that title is ridiculous, uh, hasn't managed to get, you know, the kids to the yard. Uh, Empire put it in the 500 best ever films in 2015. I think the people that do review it are, are really, really positive about it. They, they actually make the effort to, to go on websites like Letterboxd and all the YouTube comments under the videos that I watched to research it. Again, probably me and Patrick more so. It, it really kind of chimes with this thing of like understanding that this is not, this is going to miss a lot of people for various reasons, various valid reasons. The, uh, like the portentous length and title is something that's been noted for us to discuss. Uh, so I've got some stuff there. Uh, I think the spoilerific title is a way of saying, like, if you give a shit about whodunits and typical storytelling and, and westerns and things like that, this then this isn't for you. There's long history of that, though, Matt, of titles revealing the main the main plot point within the film. And, and I think Patrick, mm. uh, Patrick alluded to it and I totally agree. It's the inevitability that kind of gives it its power. Yeah. You, you are, you are watching something and unravel a bit like when I, and we will get to it. When I went to see Titanic, I know the ship will sink, but uh, yeah. it's the inevitability of the tragedy and, and the, the tragic element that runs through the film is the emotional through line for me. Obviously it didn't work for you, but it looked like, Right now, one of the most popular things for people, documentaries, podcasts, are murder documentaries. So you know the person's been murdered. There's an amazing uh, program, like uh, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I don't know whether any of you have ever seen it, but it's fucking brilliant. You know, you know it. But the the real tension and the drive of this film is how and why. 
you get to the when, but it's, I mean, like the when is a really, um, uh, pro- uh, kind of provocative thing and it takes its time. And it, I really lament in that journey that I, I, I find myself on in this film because that's a big draw. There's a word that I wanted to just throw out there and see what you come back with. And that's pacing. Like, what is pacing? What does it mean to you? Who's responsible for it? And how do you kind of view it in terms of this movie? Well, in this film, we touched upon it as well, but obviously it was edited down quite a lot. Um, but the pacing is kind of almost dictated by the narration. And that's what the editor wanted the guide track for anyway. But with this film, I, <laughs> for, I I'm already at, I, I can't believe how quickly I get to the, the Jesse being shot. I, I find the pace kind of rattles along quite quickly here. And that's despite lingering shots, lingering landscapes and, and shots of time passing by in nature. Um, and we, we said it before for a largely kind of simple plot film, a lot happens and it happens scene by scene. And there's a drive to each scene for each character and what they, where they're going and what, what's affecting them. And I know it's an off-putting time that people flock to see Justice League, and that's that's four hours. Well, and there will, there will be time when I'll be checking my watch on far shorter films than this, far mm-hmm. shorter films with mm-hmm. more going on on screen. There, you know, uh, which I think it's. I would love for there to be more of a nuts and bolts kind of explanation as the, um, but yeah, there probably because it's a good a, question, a, Matt, and it's hard yeah. to answer. Is it like a relativity thing, like the Einstein? Yeah, you know, I, th- I, I, th- I think <laughs> it. I think it absolutely is. It's relative <laughs> to. It's relative to the film that you're watching. So when when we reviewed all the real girls, that is a far shorter film than this. Not to not to bring you know, dig up old graves, uh... Devlin, but <laughs> but that film was a slog for me to get through. This film, uh, a bit like Patrick said, it's almost like a like a dream i i I wait the pacing does not bother me one bit did did it bother you matt the pacing well let's define what pacing is for anyone who doesn't really know like who's responsible for pacing a movie does it come from the script does it come from the editing is it the the all-round direction i I think the script can kind of give you an idea of the pacing it's supposed to be a page per per minute in a script but specifically what what happens and when is is that I think the, I think event, no, I think, well, the director, uh, whoever's helming the project is going to be responsible, overall responsible for the pacing. You know, the editor is in execution of actually editing shots together, but you could edit, you know, look at Michael Bay. You could, you could edit all over the place, but if you've, uh, composed and, and staged the scene in such a way that it can only really be done one way yeah, or cut to fuck. There are, there are it, directors who, who won't allow you yeah. that kind of coverage, right? They'll say it's, it, it goes how I want it to go because I only shot it in one scene. But I think, I think the instance, Matt, is definitely established first and foremost to give you an idea in the script. I mean, the script has a certain amount of pages and those pages will dictate how many minutes you expected the runtime to be. So you could have. Right. So typically a page. You could have a 200 pound, uh, 200 pound, 200 page script. You could have a 90 page script. You could have a hundred page script. That hundred page script could still come down to 90 minutes or something. But let's say an action film, you got a 90 page script with three action, three action sequences that are a paragraph, um, four eighths of a page as a a script page is broken down into your eights. 
those four eighths of a page could become four pages, four or five minutes. Cause it is, you know, you storyboard, you then go into your meetings after a script and the director, the producers, the DOP, you'll have your meeting, uh, with an editor and, and a storyboarder to say, right, this sequence is written like it, they fight. And then you break mm. down that fight into this or, we see dinosaurs coming over the horizon, one line, but that could be expanded into a whole page of script. Because it's, so you don't think the script is responsible? I think the script is, is, the, is the is the establisher of what to expect, but then you develop and you develop with the with them all because then the director goes, right, this script is 90 pages, but my vision, I want to add scenes here. I want to add scenes here. I want to take scenes away from there and develop and develop and develop. So you may not even find the pace until you get into the editing room. And with the editor on this, he, he put the narrator on as a guide track to find the pace of this film. And then Andrew Dominic might like that and say, keep that shot longer, keep that shot longer. Yeah. Like uh, with certain films, I feel like it's been planned. This scene ends, this scene begins. Sure. And this is, this is where that cuts to that. This film, I, it, it can't have happened that way because it, it was originally so much longer. Where were these scenes? Sure. Oh, sure. I see scene. your point. Yeah. So what they've done, they, they've cropped out an entire, uh, like, but, but just it's bits and pieces, it's like a house of cards, isn't it? Like how, how do you remove these things? Like it surely, if it was designed efficiently and shot the way it was designed, it would be uh, that thing. Well, this and, isn't, and, but, the, but this is, we discussed it, uh, last week when we discussed a, in Alien, how every 15 minutes there is a, um, there is something happens in the story that drives the next, the next sequence. And it, every 15 minutes, so it's on the button. And if you were to dissect like some of the Friday the 13th, there will be a kill every 10 minutes because people might start getting bored. So they are, they are tightly constructed. Uh, this film, I don't think you can apply those kind of, Hollywood conventional 90 minute blockbuster type, uh, rules because like you say, like you said, Matt, the original was four and a half hour cut. There's no way, you, there's no way that you could go, but we also, but what, why it, would you a, design a four and a half hour cut? Well, well, we don't know. We don't know what, what it entails. We don't know what yeah, plot yeah. it entails. We don't know whether there's other characters we've not been introduced to. Have you ever broken down a script that was that far off in terms of running length? Um, I mean, give or take half an hour. Yeah. You, you, you lose loads. I've been on sets where we've been shooting something and the director or the producer or the first AD has gone, what, use this scene? This will be on the cutting room floor. Because sometimes you find it on the set and you start shooting something like, this isn't yeah, work. Assembly cuts are incredibly long, right, Dev? That's, that's the deal. And then it's honed. It's, it's chipped away yeah. at. And until it gets to a point where everyone agrees. It's unusual that they put this one out at a festival. And a four-hour version. I do find that unusual. What was this? Um, that, I was that, thinking, what was this reaction? Well, that that was the myth, right? That they put out a a, a a rough assembly, and Deakins and Dominic are making out like this thing is a mythical four and a half hour perfect cut of this movie. But it's a rough assembly. They they're just looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, and and it's not it's not the fans of the movie think that there's this cut out there that, that is incredible. And I just, I don't think it exists. But, I, but I, if in, you think of a filmmaker they, like, uh, like Wong Kar Wai, not only do his films completely fluctuate in length, sometimes he'll be shooting a film, put it down for two years, go shoot something else, and then come back and finish this film. Or sometimes, like, in the mood for love in 2046, he'll just decide to arbitrarily make two films. Like, uh, during the edit, I think there's, um, 
possibly uh, along with that and also along with the narration there's there are quite reasonably cinematic guidelines maybe not so much rules but guidelines as to how films should be put together and guidelines as to how films will resonate with people and but what you have is is a a, a vast toolbox that you can kind of go into and out of and perhaps the rule should be that you don't use an omniscient narrator describing actions happening on the screen because it, for a lot of people that's going to be shit and wrote and it's going to but but for some people it's going to it's going to hit It'll they work. also spent a long time editing this like hmm. they to the point where the contract was up at um Scott free uh, offices and they had to move out of them well they threw Dominic out of the editing room and so I suppose with pacing comes Matt, probably he was a hindrance at some points. And this is where your producer and Warner Brothers, the studio comes in, the executives and say, you're wrong. And then the decision is made there in post and say, go away. We're going to edit it down to succinct story and then show you that. Yeah, but no one ever saw that version and it yeah. just went to waste. It spent, spent, they Apparently paid him a shitload of money. Why did they pay Michael Kahn all this money? I don't yeah. understand what Warners are doing. I don't understand why he's getting fired every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he likes the cut that we've seen. It's not a very Warner Brothers-y film though, is it? Let's face it. It's the Brad Pitt thing, right? It's You're Brad right. Pitt. I think what you said yeah. earlier was that Brad Pitt plus Western equals Warner Brothers. Well, I also think that it was a suggestion okay. that it was, uh, uh, yeah. get, this was his first like full fledged plan B production, I believe. So it's like Warner's wanted to be the guys who are going to be taking Brad's, Brad's business. If Brad's going to be churning out these films, give him his dream project first and then maybe he'll do a few for us like Clooney. Well, style, it's the, maybe. it's the Christopher, it's the Christopher Nolan effect, isn't it? Like, uh, come, come to us and we'll, we'll, We'll fund your passion projects once you give us a conglomerate hit. Yep. One for you, one for me. Well, like we just said, Michael Kahn, like, was brought in. Then he said, you've got to get it under two hours. I don't know if anyone saw it. got 150, didn't he? got 150. And they said, like, this is the guy. He edited Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. If he can't do it, Schindler's List. You know, and, and some really long movies, too. Like, uh, Schindler's List and Private Ryan are about the same as this, Mm. I think. But if you can't make but, sense of yeah. what was shot, uh, then with a guy like that... No, well, that's uh, unfair because that's yeah. under two hours. But this film does make sense at 2.40. There's got to be a sense of uh, uh, simpatico between director and, and uh, editor. So the editor on this was Dylan Titchener, who is used to working with early career P.T. Anderson, who ran long... <laughs> He ran how many shot a million a million feet of film for Magnolia, and he managed to get it down. That's like two uh, two and a half, maybe Magnolia. Magnolia is a long, baggy film with omniscient narration. Like it is. Well, that's only in the intro, right? Uh, yes, uh, yes. O- only in the prologue. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um, I, I, I dare I dare I ask the the panel for favorite scenes before we get into our final thoughts i've actually got some actually yeah i've got i've got them well go on devlin give me give me give us your favorite scene from the film um probably the one that encapsulates the 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 whole film the best for me is the sequence towards the end uh when it's just bob charlie and jesse in the house and bob is sitting on the floor with his legs crossed like a child playing with a wooden toy in front of the fire and Charlie's got the bundle of sticks in his hand and, and you can see Jesse gives him the old, you know, the, he's, he's, 
he's he's uh, denigrating him again, messing with him. But then he pulls him over in that really fatherly, and he puts his hands on his shoulders, and it's like it's the you know it's it's an earlier version of Bob. It's everything that he would have wanted from Jesse. And then he turns on him and the viciousness with which he turns on him and the reaction of, like you were saying, Gally, that like, we didn't mention him a, a great deal, but Sam Rockwell's reaction, the shock and the hurt in his face and just the terror sells it so much. It's just, um, it's such a great encapsulation of the, of the relationship between Jesse and Bob. I, and it's, it's a total masterclass from all three people in that scene, I think. Charlie, you stay with the animals. Me and the kid will walk into that bank just before noon. Bob will move that cashier away from the shotgun that's under the counter. And I'll creep up behind that cashier. And I'll cock his head back like so. And I'll say, how coming off scouring of creation like you still sucking air with so many mining coffins? I'll say, how did you get to reach your 20th birthday without leaking out all of your clothes? And if I don't like his attitude, I will slit that filled doodle so deep he will flop on the floor like a fish. My God, what just happened? <laughs> what about you, Patrick? There's a dinner table scene at the, I think it's <laughs> the Boltons. Um, and this is when Robert really kind of transforms and maybe gives up on Jesse. Um, and they're around the table and I, I mean, like Brad Pitt, Jesse James is kind of is almost most menacing in this scene. Um, and they say, uh, Charlie says that Robert's very obsessed with him when he was 11, 12 years old and had all these nickel books and lists of similarities. And the shot of Affleck delivering the lines uh, almost, almost romantically, almost fondly remembering a happier time when he was more innocent and childlike, but with an edge of almost fear of finally telling his hero what it is, um, relating to when he shared a cigar with him. And he's like, you're 5'8", I'm 5'8". You, you're the youngest of brothers. Mm. Your father was a pastor. And I seem to have lost some curiosities over the time. And he has this, oh, this childlike kind of sigh at the end. And it's lost on Pip. And he just says, ain't he something? I just think performance wise, the scene is, is amazing. Uh, Rockwell doing the little bits there as well. But the, the moment when Pip says, uh, whispered in his ear, it was Jesse James that the boys throat. I think that scene. Something so still and so kind of almost claustrophobic compared to the film that has such a wonderful landscape. This is a scene that really gets me, really gets under my skin and I can't take my eyes off it. And it's the scene where Robert finally stands up to him and says, you come here to apologize for beating my cousin Alpha. Um, and I almost laugh at the line when he's like, woman, shut your mouth. He's just, he's stepping up a gear in his confidence and who he's becoming. And from a development point of view, it's it's an amazing scene for me. I agree with both of those, uh, that they would be up there for me. I'm just going to mention a couple just scattered throughout. There's the moment where we're introduced to Ford and he kind of works up the courage to go over and sit with them. And as soon as he sits down, they call for the chow. 
and he's kind of sat there on his own yeah. immediately. That was a really good, cause I'm really into the way characters are introduced. Cause I, I think yeah, he's the outsider from the minute one. He's always on the, on the periphery of the gang. And that's a visual way of doing it. Not yeah. getting back <laughs> into my rant, but that's a visual way of doing it. Robert um, said. He and felt the roughness of the bark <laughs> on the lodge. Everybody went for chow. <laughs> but uh, Ford, when, when when he smokes the cigar with Jesse and it makes him sick, he can't even emulate him in the most basic mm-hmm. way. And um, and he says that he knows the stories he read about Jesse are a lie, but there's a part of him that, that needs it to be true. Uh, I, I really liked that. When he takes the mask um, to his little box to make it true as well. To add it to the stories. Right, right. It, yeah, it's all there. Uh, there's a moment where, where Jesse kills the snake and there's, I think there's something in that. I was kind of wrecking my brain. Like, what are they telling me? But I think there's an idea of the snake still living, going on living after death and he's doing it in front of Ford. It could be something there. And there's two of them entwining themselves around each there's other. There's two of them intertwined. Yeah. It's, that's pretty clever. Uh, there's the ghostly gaunt meeting with Ed where he looks pale like the skull that you've talked about already. Uh, and then one more, there's the, the scene where he beats the kid. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's the, is it's cousin. Oh, yeah, it's his cousin. Albert. And, but that's more so a, a design thing. There's, there's something in Pitt's performance there that I liked, but it's also the design there, the fences and the snow and the trees and just the colors and the horses and just purely on a, from a visual sense there, I'll, I'll, Big it up a bit, so never mind. It's the reframing of the narrative on stage, um, from start to finish. But in particular, as as he as he goes through these performances, the audience start to turn on him. And I do love the guy who's like coward. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Okay, I'll concede. It, that well, one. it gets a chuckle, but it's also like the first time that that Robert's really confronted with actually with what he's done. And the consequences of what he's done starts to reveal themselves. And also just love the way he jumps into the crowd and starts kicking the shit. And, it, and he obviously, <laughs> like Axel well, Rose. he doesn't know who said it. So he just starts hitting, he starts hitting everybody, which is obviously symbolic. So, um, yeah, no, um, mm. I, I could say the last 40 minutes, but, um, it is all the last 40 minutes. I think it's just a, I think Patriot used the word crescendo, um, which again, pretentious, but somewhat, on the button as far as how I felt when with the music as it comes and that still frame, we don't actually see him get shot. Um, and we fade to black. It's all, yeah, it's all kind of beautifully done. Right. Well, let's do our final thoughts then. So Matt, I'll start with you. I'm glad that we did those favorite scenes together because that felt like we, we gelled a bit there. We could at least agree on the merits of, of the film and now I'm going to drag it down again. <laughs> so, um, it was a bit of an ordeal for me. I'm going to go as quickly as I can through this because I've got a few pages, to be honest. Um, uh, I, I was really nervous about this one because I didn't want to make myself look stupid, like the only mug that didn't get it, understand it, or appreciate it, even though I really tried twice. Um, uh, I, I felt like I'd, I'd missed its genius, and I went online looking for validation from people, and uh, all the res- all the reviews were positive. So I'm kind of out in the cold on this one, I think. But I I know I am, so that's okay. Um, uh, there's a film by Gus Van Sant called Jerry with Casey Affleck, which ironically can be accused of almost everything apart from the voiceover stuff that I've talked about, and it that blows my mind every time. So 
the departure from tradition uh, isn't what I take umbrage with, really. Um, I think we've probably said everything um, that, that I wanted to say that was negative. So I'll just go straight to can I recommend it? And I, I don't think I can. It, it felt like a monotonous note that was played for two hours and 40 minutes with, with no levity. I know it's not a comedy, but there's really, there wasn't much for me to latch on to. Um, uh, a film that spells out its own ending and takes two hours 40 to play out. Um, and then at the conclusion leaves you kind of wondering what happened. Uh, it is a commercial suicide. I think the director knew that. Uh, it's beautifully designed and shot. Deakins rules, no arguments there. He's fantastic. Um, I think the length is unnecessarily, um, you know, it's unnecessary and it's kind of exacerbated by like that feeling and, and a stance that I, I was just too far removed. I felt like, um, I, I was kept at arm's length from this one. It was very strange. I, uh, if this is artful, subtle, meditative storytelling, then you can keep it because I, I, I don't. The other thing I found that there's the, there's a Reddit thread and there's a boffin on there and he's he's invoking Kierkegaard and I, I I just I don't want to feel like I'm too dumb to get into to things I've it was too cold too detached too esoteric and uh, it was either too smart for me and that wouldn't be the first time but maybe it was too smart for its own good I don't know uh, it wasn't enjoyable for me. Oh God, I'm ending on such a downbeat here. We'll, we'll bring it back up. Um, don't worry. I, I, I didn't feel like a participating audience member, mm. and I, I that that was an issue. Um, uh, I'm not the brightest viewer around, but I'm not the dumbest. And if I can't follow what's going on, or if I'm puzzled uh, about like the execution of it, I think there must be a problem for a considerable number of of people out there. Your average film goer is probably not going to go for this one. Uh, the, the best way I can put it is that I felt like I was being held at arm's length as opposed to being embraced by a film. So, uh, that, that's, that's kind of where I, where I stand with it. So for, for a more positive view, I'm sure I'll pass over to, to Devlin. The thing is, I, I recognize everything that, that you're saying, not from this film, oddly, but from other films that I've had recommended to me. And I understand the feeling of not being on the same page as the, as, as people when it comes down to the merits of something that is being described as being, uh, I also find it very frustrating when people try and, um, justify their preferences by invoking things that perhaps we don't really fully understand ourselves. I don't feel like there's any need to ever drag Kierkegaard into this film, to be honest. Um, if unless unless the person themselves is is just happens to be both a fan of this film and a, a deeply well-read Kierkegaard scholar, but even then, I think all you're doing there is smashing two of your favorite things together and expecting that they make any sense as a as a, as a comparison. I, I but what I would say is is I've had two experiences oddly um, with Patrick of walking out of films where both of us have been kind of completely gripped by something that we perhaps also ourselves didn't fully understand. Uh, and oddly with very similar titles. The second was uh, a lot more recently. We both went to see the assassin together, the uh, Hu Xiaoxian movie, which was also a film that was criticized for being obtuse, needlessly pretty, but em empty, uh, uh, confusing, um, it was never intended to be commercial on the same level, but 
um, both times we walked out of these films and were kind of stunned by them. Uh, and that they, whether that was, um, the feeling of seeing it on a big screen with that complete immersion probably really helped. And also seeing it at the time that it came out probably really helped. Um, it's whether I could recommend, I would recommend it, of course, because I'm rewatching it uh, for this. I've seen it a couple of times in the intervening year. It's not a film that I go back to very, very regularly, probably because it is such, uh, for two reasons. One is that it's completely burned into my memory, virtually every single scene of it. I don't feel the need to go back to it too often. And the other is just that it is, it's, it's a, it's a lot to take in. And it does, for me, at least it, it, it drains me. I, I get so gripped by it that I really do find it quite draining. Um, and that's not something that's going to happen probably for a lot of audience members and not in the sense that like, you don't get it just in the sense that the film doesn't hit you in that way. You're right. When you say commercial suicide, it's not, it's not a film that's, that is designed to be able to hook everyone it's going to hook the people it hooks. And I think probably the reason why so much of the uh, posthumous kind of um, critical community trying to raise it up is, is partially based on a kind of evangelical idea of like, this is an amazing thing and it means a lot to me. And it's strange that no one else really seems to like it or even know it. And another is, is yeah, is just trying to justify that, trying to justify what it is that hooks you. And it might just be kind of a little bit, ineffable it just some things drive and some things don't this has been a really great talk amongst us and mainly because of your input matt because there's things you maybe look at in a different way and it's fascinating to me that i don't it's just not a problem to me at all um whether that's a the reason that Devlin said that we went to the cinema we saw it on this because the view had some big old lovely screens and we would have seen it on that and I just, I'm very enchanted by this film. I find it has a very long lasting, uh, I'm quite romantic towards it. And whether I fully understand those reasons, I don't know, but I think there's a combination of the music, the, the sound, the, the acting, the, I, I'm, I'm very endeavored with historical figures and their, their fame and interest anyway. And Jesse James then, I think Brad Pitt portrays it very well. But I remember just walking out of the cinema when me and Dev both looked at each other like almost gobsmacked silence. Um, we had that, shared that moment. I'll never forget that because that kind of lingered over me ever since. Whenever I think about the film, I think about it very fondly. Um, yeah. And so obviously it's a recommendation for me, but it, it is a recommendation that has to come with Matthew's caveats because those warnings are, are just, I think. It's a long runtime. The pacing won't be for everyone. Like the assassin, Devlin, I don't think I fully understand it all. Um, I tried to look at it from a critical eye more this time, but instead I just kept developing scenes like Jesse getting shot. I think he's presented himself twice now at the window and he's putting down his guns. I never saw that before. So now I'm getting more layers and I'm actually thinking better of the film. The script, I, I know it, it's, well, we've spoken about the Shakespearean thing and I know, you know, it's kind of maybe on the nose a bit in, in telling us where we're going, but 
I, I think it's very clever. I think the direction is very clever. It looks beautiful. The music's great. I think there's a marriage in this film that really speaks to me uh, tonally. I kind of like the not the indirect emotional pull of the inevitability and the the sorrow in the tragedy really works for me here. And that's where my emotional pull is not necessarily towards Robert Ford as a person, but just the sadness of someone or two people finding their way in the world and not quite sure of themselves and, and the, the harsh reality of living at that time and living with things uh, uh, regretfully and, all of that kind of speaks to me from a narrative point of view. Um, there's a bit in it that, I don't know, it really struck me yesterday was when Robert is talking to Elizabeth on the field and she says, you want me to change subject? I noticed that he's wearing a very similar coat to Jesse James. And a little subtle point of that, of the costume with the fur coat, is like his own memory in, in, t- towards Jesse James. And that, speaks to me a lot about his state of mind and the regrets and everything. And I don't know, scene by scene, I, I just kind of really enamored by, by this film. Um, I think it's really quite well made actually. Uh, where can we find it then? Um, Patrick Devlin? It's not on anything streaming at the minute. You're going to have to pay for it from all your usual vendors. Um, I would always recommend a Blu-ray if you've got a nice TV and a, a Blu-ray player because you're going to get a better contrast and it's going to show off the film, uh, a lot, a lot more. If you're listening in America, you, you can stream it on, um, Direct TV, Fubo, Showtime. And I think that's it. But you can rent it and buy it from the usual places. But yeah. Right. Well, I, I've just realized as well that it's, it's uh, Gally's pick. It's my pick. Yeah. So, um, Ooh. so I've decided, uh, I've decided to, to keep it challenging. So keep the mind. Oh, yeah. Are we, are we still a grown up podcast or what? we're still a grown up podcast until we're told otherwise or the audience say we need more silly boobs. Um, but, <laughs> but no, um, uh, we, we're going to go for we're going to go for something that uh, harkens back to uh, 80s cinema. Uh, harkens back though, not of the era. Um, a, a fantasy tale and a film as well that was m- super important uh, and a director that is super fascinating. Um, so yeah, we're going to be looking at Richard Kelly's. Donnie Darko. That's a great pick, man. Yeah, good, good pick. For the next episode though, what have we got, Devlin, Matt? Well, this was actually a, 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 a Matt suggestion based on one of his tremendous bingo boards that he makes for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was not aware of this, but luckily I was made aware that it is Zombie Awareness Month in May. And so myself and Matt have put together a, uh, uh, a list of May of the Dead. May of the Dead. There we go. 31, uh, zombie films of the various eras. We're going to be, uh, uh, programming that. So that's going to be coming. That will be the, the next episode after this. That'll be a, a podcast episode and accompanying blog. Um, Matt, that, that picture behind you looks awfully dusty. It does. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. So we'll, uh, we'll say our goodbyes, uh, team. Um, I don't have an outro uh, line because the film doesn't have any moments of levity. Coward! It's Galley in Glasgow signing out. Stay safe, everyone. It's Devon in London. You got a big old pecker for such a little squirrel. It's Patrick in London. I guess I'll take my guns off for fear the neighbors might spy them. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
gonna shoot you down just a change. 